6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his teaching on the book of Psalms, chapters 73 through 80. The lessons in the wilderness. Remember, they obviously had they'd forgotten the futility of the Egyptian gods that were demonstrated by the plagues in Egypt that got them out of Egypt. They forgot about all of that. Remember the water miracles? Striking the rock when they needed water twice, Exodus 17 and then at Numbers 20, and uh, the giving of manna. All these things were going on during 38 years of wandering, supernatural food being provided. They were not happy with that. They wanted fowl, right? And so God gave them quail. You know, one of God's greatest judgments is to give us what we want. That happens, happened with them with quail. It often happens when... There's an affair outside of marriage. They get judged by getting what they think they want and discovering that that's a judgment. Marvelous things did he in the sight of their fathers in the land of Egypt in the field of Zom. He divided the sea, caused them to pass through. He made the waters to stand as a heap. Instead of just reminding them of these miracles that they all forget. In the daytime also he led them with a cloud on all the night with a light of fire. He clave the rocks in the wilderness, in fact twice, and gave them to drink as out of the great depths. And you know at Jabal Allah they found the rock that's been split and the incredible erosion that seems to have occurred there. Absolutely fascinating to get into that. He brought streams out of the rock and caused the waters to run down like rivers. And they sinned yet more against him by provoking the Most High in the wilderness. And they tempted God by their heart, asking, them, asking meat for their lust. Manna wasn't enough. They wanted meat. Yea, they spake against God. They said, can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Well, he did, all right. <laughs> well, he smote the rock that the waters gushed out. The streams overflowed. Can he give us bread also? Can he provide flesh for his people? Therefore, the Lord heard this and was wroth. So a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger came up against Israel, because they believed not in God and trusted not in his salvation. You remember that. It was one failure after another, then judgment, and so on. All the way through the book of Numbers, of course, is the profile of that. Though he had commanded the clouds from above, he opened the doors of heaven, and it rained down manna upon them to eat, and had given them of corn of heaven. Man did eat angels' food. He sent them Meat to the full. He caused an east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he brought in the south wind. And he rained flesh upon them as dust, and feathered fowls like as the sand of the sea. And he let it fall in the midst of their camp, round about their habitations, so they did eat and were well filled, for he gave them their own desire. And they were not estranged from their lust, but while their meat was yet in their mouths, the wrath of God came upon them and slew the fattest of them and smote down the chosen men of Israel. Strange times. Strange times. For all this they sinned still, believed not for his wondrous works. Therefore their days did he consume in vanity and their years in trouble. When he slew them, then they sought him. And they returned and inquired early after God. 
The word earnestly might be a better translation for, for early. They remembered that God was the rock, the high God, the redeemer. Nevertheless, they did flatter him with their mouth and they lied unto him with their tongues for their heart was not right with him. Neither were they steadfast in his covenant. But he, being full of compassion, forgave their iniquity, destroyed them not. Yea, many a time turned he his anger away and did not stir up all his wrath, for he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passeth away and cometh not again. So then he slips from after verse 39. He's going to go now talking about the, repeating the lessons of Egypt itself. How oft they provoke him in the wilderness and they grieve him in the desert. Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They remembered not his hand, nor the day that he delivered them from the enemy. How he had wrought his signs in Egypt and his wonders in the field of Zoan. And had turned their rivers into blood and their floods that they could not drink. He sent divers sorts of flies among them, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He gave them also increase unto the caterpillar and their labor unto the locusts. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave up their cattle also to the hail and the flocks to hot thunderbolts. He cast upon them the fierceness of his anger, wrath and indignation and trouble by sending evil angels among them. He made a way to his anger. He spared not their soul from death but gave their life over to the pestilence. Those nine plagues... 10 if you count the death of the firstborn, but those plagues, incredible reading, Exodus 12 and following, and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the chief of their strength in the tabernacles of Ham, but made his own people to go forth like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock, and he led them on safely, so that they feared not, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies. <laughs> I always think, I'm always amused by, they always have these people say, well, there was a wind and the, 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 the river was only three foot deep. That's how they got across. That sets the stage for even a bigger miracle to have the whole Egyptian army drown in three feet of water. That's it. <laughs> and the psalmist turns to the time of the judges, the third generation in Canaan that turned idols. After Joshua, they did a pretty good job, they, but it was the generation after that. So the second generation didn't do bad. Third generation, book of Judges, Blew it. He brought them to the border of his sanctuary, even to this mountain, which is his right hand had purchased. He cast out the heathen also before them and divided them in inheritance by line and made the tribes of Israel to dwell in their tents. Yet they tempted and provoked the most high God and kept not his testimonies, but turned back and dealt unfaithfully like their fathers. They were turned aside like a deceitful bow. There's that interesting expression. Deceitful bow. It occurs in Hosea 7 verse 16. And Revelation 6, verse 2, that might give us some clues as to why it is the white horseman in Revelation 6 being carrying a bow. Anyway, for they provoked him to anger with their high places, moved him to jealousy with their graven images. When God heard this, he was wroth and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he forsook the tabernacle of Shiloh, the tent which had been placed among men. He delivered his strength unto captivity and his glory to the enemy's hand. The book of Judges records seven different nations that invaded Israel and God raises up judges and they, when they repent and then the, and when people will, will, will turn to him, there was but just a continual sequence of failures. 
He gave his people over also into the sword and was wroth with his inheritance. The fire consumed their young men and their maidens were not given to marriage. Their priests fell by the sword and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awaked as one out of a sleep and like a mighty man that shouteth by reason of wine. He's using it metaphorically as if he woke up and you know, got at it. He smote his enemies and the hinder parts. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> we have a different way of saying it today, but I won't go there. And put them to a perpetual reproach. Moreover, he refused the tabernacle of Joseph and chose not the tribe of Ephraim. See, that's a rejection of the northern kingdom. But chose the tribe of Judah, the Mount Zion, which he loved. And he built a sanctuary like high palaces, like the earth which he hath established forever. He chose David also his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. And following the ewes great with the young, he brought him to feed Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he fed them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them by the skillfulness of his hands. And that's it. That's that psalm. Psalm 79. And this may, may speak of Israel. This is a prayer for God's people, of course, the nation of Israel. But it may apply most poignantly in the period yet to come. This terrible time of trouble that's yet to emerge. And uh, so, again, it's a psalm of Asaph. Now, this can be, uh, include allusions to the siege of Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian captivity in the 6th century B.C., very possibly. It also can, be, uh, can include allusions to the Maccabean period, which occurred after the desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes. But the ultimate prophecy application here would be uh, the ultimate fulfillment would be in the Great Tribulation. Okay. Now you need to understand how Jerusalem stood in those early days. The false prophets were saying that God would never allow destruction and captivity. And two guys, Jeremiah and Ezekiel, said the contrary. He said, the, you're hearing, listening to the false prophets, God is going to judge. And uh, so, obviously the prophecy that the city would never be taken... Uh, was false, and the inhabitants were carried away to captivity, just as Ezekiel and Jeremiah had predicted. Jeremiah was thrown in a dungeon as a traitor because of his predictions. They said the temple would never be destroyed. It was destroyed, just as they destroyed it. And uh, the temple, the, the, their sanctuary, was the center of all things for them. So let's jump in. The Psalm of Asaph, Psalm 79. O God, the heathen are come into thine inheritance... The holy temple and have they defiled? They have laid Jerusalem on heaps. The dead bodies of thy servants have they given to meat unto the fowls of the heaven and the flesh of thy saints unto the beasts of the earth. See, this is their painful dilemma. Understand how they must have felt this horrible carnage that, that uh, they thought they were immune to. Why was God permitting this to happen to them? See, the false prophets have been constantly telling them that this could not happen to God's people. Wrong. The prophet of Jeremiah had been faithfully giving God's warning, so much so that he was, as I say, being put into a dungeon. He was discredited and labeled as a traitor. You know, we got to be careful. Uh, we might have the same false confidence about ourselves with America that God's judgment may be overdue on ourselves for a different but parallel set of reasons. 
The Israelites could not understand why God had not protected them. And this is still a question today in Israel. A great many Jews have become atheists because of the terrible persecution and suffering of their people in Germany during Hitler's dictatorship. Just that alone. And we should understand, it is understandable why they feel that way. We never go to visit Israel without spending some hours in Yad Vashem. And the Yad Vashem memorial has been incredibly um, improved. It's a moving experience to really understand all that. See, Israel today, justifiably, would have the same question the psalmist has. But have they been faithful to God? Are they back in a proper relationship with him? Have they accepted his Messiah? Of course not. Are they turning to him? Some are. That's a very interesting uh, thing that's happening. But in general, of course, the answer is no. Judgment has come upon the nations of the world, nations just like us. We need to understand that. As we see ourselves slide further and further into paganism and rebellion against the God of the Bible, we should understand what the results of that is destined to be. Let's go on to Psalm 79, verse 3. Their blood have they shed like waters round about Jerusalem. There was none to bury them. We're become a reproach to our neighbors, a scorn and derision to them that are round about us. How long, O Lord? Wilt thou be angry forever? Shall thy jealousy burn like fire? Pour out thy wrath upon the heathen that have not known thee, and upon the kingdoms that have not called upon thy name, for they have devoured Jacob and laid waste his dwelling place. O remember not against us former iniquities. Let thy tender mercy speedily prevent us, for we are brought very low. And... Uh, See, wherever the Christ is rejected, there's judgment. You either meet him in judgment or redemption. There are only two ways. Now let's listen to the cry here. Help us, O God, of our salvation for the glory of thy name and deliver us and purge away our sins for thy name's sake. Wherefore should the heathen say, where is their God? Let him be known among the heathen in our sight by the revenging of the blood of thy servants which is shed. And... Uh, Israel had been making the boast that God would, uh, uh, you know, was going to deliver them. And he had not delivered them. And so the heathen obviously were making fun of them. That's causing the enemies of God to blaspheme. Let the sighing of the prisoner come before thee. According to the greatness of thy power, preserve thou those who, that are appointed to die. Render unto our neighbors sevenfold unto their bosom their reproach wherewith they have reproached thee, O Lord. So we, thy people and sheep of thy pasture, will give thee thanks forever. We will show forth thy praise to all generations. And uh, so, praise from generation to generation. That's what it really said. And uh, so, heavy stuff. Heavy stuff has happened. Heavy stuff is still coming. Well, now we've got a prayer, the last one of this series uh, for tonight. Prayer to the shepherd of Israel. To the chief musician of the Shoshan and Ameth, which I, something has something to do with the lilies. No one's quite sure what it has to do with lilies. Was it a theme or just a... Anyway, there's all speculations, but we're not sure what that really means. Okay. 
and uh, beautiful lilies has occurred several times in these psalms, and that would indefinitely, uh, in, 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 ultimately, uh, you should say, uh, re, uh, refer to Jesus Christ, the lily of the valleys. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims. Who would that be? Huh? God himself, right. Dwellest between the cherubims. Shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up thy strength and come and save us. Why does he mention those three? That's interesting. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh. Stir up thy strength and come and save us. What makes them distinctive? Why these three tribes? Why would Ephraim, Manasseh, Benjamin, Manasseh be mentioned? Now, if you remember our study in Numbers, you know that those three tribes followed the Ark of the Covenant. They're immediately behind the Ark in the, in the order of March, in Numbers 2, 17 through 24. It was the Ark that led the children of Israel through the wilderness. As God led them once before, their cries for them for him to lead them again. That's really what's embodied in that idiom, idiomatic usage there. Turn us again, O God, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will thou be angry against the prayer of thy people? Thou feedest them with the bread of tears, and givest them tears to drink in great measure. Boy. Thou makest us a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Turn us again, O oh God. This is going to occur three times in this psalm. And uh, this is a sad part of the psalm. It's going to shift here in a minute. Thou feedest them with the bread of tears. Boy. The psalmist feels that God is angry because he doesn't seem to answer the prayer of his people. Thou makest a strife unto our neighbors, and our enemies laugh among themselves. Talk a little bit about their history. Luke 19. The Lord's riding a donkey up over the hill of Mount of Olives. And as he comes up over the hill, it says he beheld the city. And what did he do when he saw the city? He wept over it. Why? He said, If thou hadst known, even thou at least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they're hidden from thine eyes. He pronounces judicial judgment on the nation at that point. Not forever. Paul tells us how long in Romans eleven twenty five, 25. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round and keep thee in on every side and shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. And 38 years later, after he said that, that's exactly what happened. Over a million, some say a million and a half, men, women, and children were slaughtered in those nine months by the siege of Titus that brought down the big... Milestone in Jewish history called the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Why was Jerusalem destroyed? Lots of different, let's see what Jesus said. Why did this all happen? Thou shalt lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another, because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. He held them accountable to know what Gabriel had told Daniel some five centuries earlier. This was the very day that was appointed, and the very day that they rejected him. That's what's going on. Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. That's Luke 19. A few days later that same week, he says to the women, Jesus turning to them and said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren 
and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. That's what's coming. And he's not talking about Nazi Germany. He's talking about Jerusalem, and it's yet to come. The first Holocaust took one Jew and three on the planet Earth. According to Zechariah 13, verse 8 and 9, the next one will take two out of three. And it's coming. You can see it starting. Psalmist says, turn us, turn us again, O God of hosts, and cause thy face to shine, and we shall be saved. Thou hast brought a vine out of Egypt. Thou hast cast out the heathen and planted it. Thou preparest the room before it, thou didst, and, and it's caused it to take deep root, and it filled the land. The hills were covered with the shadow of it. The boughs thereof were like goodly cedars. Up front, of course, is the, it's almost like the Old Testament benediction in number six. The use of a vine is used all through the scriptures. The classical one is uh, Isaiah 5, first seven verses. Um, it's used, again, all through uh, allusions of the vine. But uh, number one. A repeated pattern. God brings the nation of Israel out of bondage in Egypt. He cast the heathen nations out of the land of Palestine, planted Israel as vine. There, Israel built a temple in which to worship God. They were told that the temple would be destroyed and they would be put out of the land. Why? Why would God undo what he did? For the same reason, he put the heathen out of the land. They turned their backs upon God. And as I read this sort of thing, and I try to study this thing, I get nervous because I see America doing the same thing. We were not founded that way. With all our imperfections, you look at the leadership of this country that founded this country, it's astonishing to see, see the quality of their writing and their focus. All of them. And now it's being stripped out of our culture. Major political parties working hard to erase and revise our heritage. And, the, and uh, I think it's going to come at a very high price. She sent out her boughs unto the sea and her branches into the river. Why hast thou broken down her hedges so that all which pass by do pluck her? The boar out of the wood doth waste it and the wild beast of the field doth devour it. See, for years, God planted his vine, put a hedge about the land. That's described in Isaiah 5 and other, other places. They lived in the land for 600 years. God did not permit any of the great nations of that day to destroy them, though they tried. God wouldn't let it. Egypt came against Israel, had some victories, but did not destroy them. The same is true of Syria and the Hittite nation. But the day came when God removed the hedge and let the enemies of Israel come in. Why did he do that? Because they rejected their shepherd. The painful truth, we don't like to press it, but it's reality. Return, we beseech thee, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and behold and visit this vine. The vineyard which thou right hand hath planted and the branch which thou hast made strong for thyself, it is burned with fire, it is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of thy countenance. Let thy hand be upon the man of who? Thy right hand. Ooh, that's an interesting phrase. Upon the son of man whom thou madest strong for thyself. Oh, there's a messianic reference if I ever saw one. Who is at God's right hand? Israel's Messiah. David wrote in Psalm 110, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. 
That's Old Testament text. Jesus quotes it to the Pharisees and sends them into confusion in Matthew 22. He applied this to himself before the lawyers there when they challenged his messianic claim. In Genesis chapter 35, we have a son born. Rachel gave birth to her second son along the roadside that leads to, to Bethlehem. You can still see her, the, the, the grave there. Benjamin was the baby, but she didn't call him that. She called him Ben-Oni. Son of my suffering was her title. But Jacob looked upon him and said, no, we won't call him Ben-Oni. We'll call him Benjamin because he's the son of my right hand. He's both. He's the son of my suffering. He's the suffering servant, as per the cross, etc. But he's also exalted and glorified as the son of God's right hand. So Benjamin is got a, that's a real heritage there. He's a picture or a type, as we would call it, of our Lord Jesus, who came to the earth first as a son of suffering, but today he's at God's right hand. Straightforward enough, right? Again, Psalm 110, sit thou my right hand until I make thine enemies for children. Psalm 110, verse 1, one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. And he's going to return from that position to the earth. Right now he's on his father's throne. He's going to be on his own. Hosea 5.15. I will return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. In their affliction, they will seek me earnestly. Psalmist continues, so we will not go back from thee. Quicken us that we will call upon thy name. Turn us again, O God of hosts. Cause thy face to shine and we shall be saved. That's the third time we have this restorative benediction. Okay, that's our first pass through this here. And we're going to take the, that's half of book three. In the next session, I want you to, for it, I want you to meditate on the remainder of book three, Psalms 81 to 89. And uh, that's nine of them, but many of them are quite short. And I encourage you to embrace that, and we will have dealt with the entire book three for the next time. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of Psalms. For a complete listing of resources available, please visit khouse.org. Or you can call us on 1-800-KHOUSE-1. To learn more about Koinonia Institute, visit koinoniainstitute.org. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, as we continue this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word. Music